You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Christian episode 174 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Alexis Neal, and with me today are Victoria Reynolds-Farmer and Sarah Thomas. Hey, Victoria and Sarah. Hi. Before we get started with our discussion today, let's go ahead and introduce ourselves for any listeners that are new to the program. Victoria, why don't you go first? Sure. Hi, everybody. As Alexis said, I am Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the founding members of the Christian Feminist Podcast. Uh, I live with my husband, Michael, in a suburb of Atlanta, uh, just a few minutes down the road from Sarah, in fact. Uh, I work for a market research firm in the agriculture space as a community engagement manager. Uh, and for fun, I write and read and think about gender and ability and embodiment. And as you will hear soon, uh, listen to very many Broadway cast albums in my free time. Thanks, Victoria. How about you, Sarah? Sure. I am Sarah Thomas, and uh, as Victoria mentioned, I live around the corner from her alongside my husband and our two dogs, uh, Archie and Ursula. Um, I actually am a high school English teacher at one of the uh, area Catholic high schools, and when I'm not teaching, uh, English and supporting my students who are in the arts and are performing some of these musicals that have been, uh, you know, that have been covered in the show Schmigadoon. Uh, I am uh, putting the final touches on uh, the book that I have that will be launching in the next couple of weeks about uh, teaching in Catholic schools. I'm so excited to read that. Thank you so much. It's been a labor of love. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting it out into the world and into people's hands. Thanks, Sarah. Um, and I am Alexis Neal. I live in southern Missouri with my husband, Coyle, of the City of Man podcast, the political podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Uh, by training, I'm an attorney, uh, and I have done some adjuncting work at the Baptist University where my husband is on the faculty. But currently, most of my time is spent homeschooling my kids and serving in the local government in our small town. Uh, so that's a little bit about me. Uh, today's uh, podcast is about the... Um, the recent show Schmigadoon um, on uh, Apple TV Plus. And before we start discussing the show in earnest, uh, Victoria, can you talk us through a little bit of the background on the show, general information, just just to give our listeners um, some some grounding before we start discussing the details? Sure. Uh, Schmigadoon is a 2021 comedy series written by Cinco Paul and Ken Dario, uh, who are most famous for their work in the Despicable Me Minions franchise, um, and also to theater people who are familiar with that community. It is, I would say, a very loving uh, parody satire of the golden age of American musicals. Uh, by golden age, I mean the 1940s and 50s. Uh, and in the show, two New York City doctors, Josh and Melissa, uh, who are experiencing a rough patch in their relationship, get lost while on a relationship retreat hike in the woods. Uh, and they come upon this town, Schmigadoon, um, a play on the very weird uh, musical Brigadoon about a Scottish town that only appears once every 50 years. Uh, and in Schmigadoon, live a bunch of townspeople who are golden age musical theater archetypes, but they don't know they're in a musical. Think characters you know from, or might know, from Oklahoma, The Sound of Music, The Music Man, The King and I, or Carousel. Uh, and Josh and Melissa can't go home until they repair their relationship and understand what true love is. 
uh, and through their interaction with the townspeople, they and the townspeople are all changed irrevocably over the course of six episodes. Everyone learns lots of lessons. Uh, and also importantly, this cast is top to bottom heavy hitters uh, from both comedy and Broadway. Josh and Melissa are central uh, couple are played by Keegan Michael Key of Key and Peel fame and Cecily Strong, who you might know from Saturday Night Live. Uh, and as for the Schmigadoonians, you get fantastic performances from Kristen Chenoweth, who is most famous for Wicked, but also won a Tony for the revival of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Uh, Alan Cumming, who has been in basically every big theater performance for the past three decades, but is most famous for playing the MC in the wonderful Cabaret revival. Uh, Anne Harada, who you will know if you watch the TV show Smash, um, but who got her break uh, starring in the early 2000s musical Avenue Q, uh, which is the one with the swearing puppets. Uh, Jane Krakowski, you probably know from 30 Rock, um, but she's also a Broadway vet. She did Once Upon a Mattress, uh, Nine, and She Loves Me. And uh, Aaron Tveit, who you maybe saw in the Les Mis movie, um, who just won the Tony last year for Moulin Rouge, and who was also in the musical adaptation of uh, Catch Me If You Can, the Spielberg movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks. Okay, that was a lot. I'll stop there. Thank you, Victoria. I'm really looking forward to hearing your perspective on the show with all of that information and experience that you have. Um, before we start talking about the show, I do want to give everyone a chance to say uh, maybe what what appealed to you about the show in the first place, like what drew you to it, and then a little bit of background about sort of your experience of musical theater um, and uh, like how much you know about it. And if you can do it quickly, maybe a favorite musical. Um, so I'll go ahead and go first, since I'm, I think, offering the layperson's opinion here is sort of the least informed when it comes to Broadway theater. Um, my husband and I actually watch uh, SNL pretty faithfully, uh, not live because we're old, but we watch the sketch clips the next day. And um, we don't necessarily even love the sketches, but I do think it's interesting to see their perspective on things happening in culture and politics and, and whatnot. So um, I like Cecily Strong a lot. She's a high point on that show, and, and Keegan-Michael Key is great. So, um, And I've seen and enjoyed many of the classic movie musicals. So when uh, Victoria had expressed an interest in doing an episode on the show, I was not a tough sell. Um, so I, I know... I'm kind of the, the, the sort of, like I said, the layperson's opinion. Um, although I, I will say I did play Lucy Van Pelt in my Christian High School's production of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. So I've got that going for me as well. Fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, as far as the favorite musical, musically, probably Godspell is my favorite. I love that uh, that album um, a lot. But most of the stuff that I really enjoy is the kid-friendly fair that I grew up watching on AMC and Turner Classic Movies. So stuff like Mary Poppins, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Dr. Dula little with Rex Harrison, um, My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, Hello Dolly, Court Jester, all of that stuff. Uh, so I'm not not any of the newer stuff, not any of the more complex, um, a lot of the simple kid fair is what I've, what I've been most familiar with. What about you guys? Sarah? All right. Uh, well, I, I think my husband and I were channel surfing one night looking for something to watch, and um, I think under the You Might Like thing on, I think we were using the Roku browser, uh, Schmigadoon popped up, and I, as soon as I saw it, I actually thought it might be a Trey Parker and Matt Stone thing, because it, it sounds like something that would be the title of a Trey Parker and Matt Stone thing, um, but I... I suggested to my husband, you know what, let's give this one a try. And I, as soon as the opening credits started, I thought, okay, I'm going to love this uh, because I really like parodies. I love musicals. Um, and as soon as I started watching, I my favorite part of the show was uh, trying to pick out on my own before going to some of the articles that might be released by Variety or Vulture or what have you, like where the songs were coming from and like which songs were clearly supposed to be nods to which shows, which I know we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode. Um, as far as my own familiarity with musical theater, um, we were talking about this before we started uh, recording. My very first live, live Broadway musical was Phantom of the Opera, which I saw 
uh, at the Fox Theater in Atlanta when I was nine years old, and I loved it. I loved the music. I loved the costumes. I loved the experience of going to the theater, and that sort of parlayed itself into, aside from one misstep where I accidentally watched um, at an entirely too young age a uh, a great performances of uh, Sweeney Todd and then promptly had nightmares for six weeks. Um, it actually began my, my sort of love affair with, uh, with musicals. I was in them in high school. I performed in a couple of them in college. I stuck around and was on the production staff of several shows while I was in college. Um, and I think if I had, oh man, if I had to pick a favorite, uh, sentimental favorite would probably be Phantom because it was my first love. Um, but I also really, really like Kiss Me Kate, uh, because it intersects two of my loves, which are Broadway shows and Shakespeare. And, um, Jane Krakowski's big number in the episode, in her Schmigadoon episode, which was a nod to, uh, to Kiss Me Kate, was my favorite song in the show. I totally knew that was going to be your favorite. Oh, no, am I that predictable? I mean, we've known each other for, what, almost... Twelve years. Twelve? Wow. Yeah, we've known each other for a long time. I knew that was going to be your favorite. (laughs) Well, I'm glad I'm playing true to type as the Broadway casting uh, nomenclature. My turn. Uh, Okay, so several facts about me. Uh, one, my mom raised me on Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals. Uh, I knew the entire cast album to The Sound of Music, South Pacific, and Carousel, uh, probably before I knew what my address and phone number were. Uh, so I've, I've been listening to these Golden Age musicals pretty much for my entire life as I can remember it. Um, let's see. Uh, fact two... Uh, Billy Bigelow from Carousel is close to top of the list of Victoria's anti-feminist guilty pleasures. Um, I have had a crush on Billy Bigelow uh, probably since I was not even old enough to have crushes. Yes, it's incredibly problematic. Um, One thing that I'm sure we will talk about is that Golden Age musicals are full of um, problematic dudes who are somehow changed for the better by well-meaning women, and that is not great. Uh, But yes, Billy Bigelow is very attractive for reasons that I feel uncomfortable about. Uh, Fact three... In 2009, my husband and I went on our honeymoon to New York City, partly because I wanted to see Broadway stuff, and we saw um, the musical Next to Normal, uh, which is wonderful, and this like weird rock musical about an American family, the mother of which uh, is a bipolar depressive, and it kind of walks through the lives of uh, the members of this family. That show uh, starred Aaron Tveit as the son, and that is when I fell in love with him, and he is in this show. So all of those three things taken together means um, I was always going to be fully in the tank for Schmigadoon. Um, I am straight down the middle of the target audience for this show. Um, I love it, but I was always going to love it. And do you have a favorite musical? Oh, goodness. Um, it's okay if the answer's no. It's very hard. I ha- I have lots of favorite musicals. Um, my sentimental favorite musical is probably The Sound of Music. Um, my smart adult thing I tell people that is my favorite musical, which is also my favorite musical but from a different side of my brain, is uh, Stephen Sondheim's Company. Sorry, that pause was that pause was me taking notes about what ones I need to try and figure out ways to watch. Because, like I said, I've seen a lot of the ones that have been made into movies, but there's there's a lot of holes in my uh, my exposure. So, just making a, making a note to watch to try and track down some of these when I get a chance. Um, all right, so now that we've kind of laid the groundwork for what the show is about and where we're coming from, um, we're gonna 
we're going to commence our the reading portion of our episode, uh, and it's broken up into um, sort of three three main topics. The first topic is going to be what does the show have to say about gender? Um, Victoria, I know you had something you wanted to talk about here. You want to lead us off? Sure. So, um, Melissa was a very relatable character for me. Um, in addition to being someone who is obsessed with Golden Age musicals, she is also a woman in a relationship who is trying to navigate um, how to be in that relationship without micromanaging it. She is kind of a perfectionist. She's very type A. Uh, and so her love of these retro musicals with their retro values about love and marriage um, is kind of an escape for her. It's also a counterpoint to some of her very 21st century values. And and she, once they get trapped in Schmigadoon, she runs up against that. She's kind of trying to figure out what it means that she knows all these beats and finds a lot of comfort in them, but also um, bringing her 21st century sensibility to the table and, and figuring out what that conflict means. Um, I related to that 100%. I, I have already told you about my uh, problematic Billy Bigelow attraction. Uh, so... Melissa, long story short, falls in love at first with the Billy Bigelow character after uh, Josh, her boyfriend, um, says that he's going to go on the Tunnel of Love ride at the carnival with her, but falls asleep. She wanders to the carnival and meets Billy Bigelow, um, and they do a, a really lovely version of the bench scene from Carousel with the cherry blossoms falling, and he... Uh, sings a song about how he's never going to fall in love uh, because he can't be tamed. Uh, here's a clip of that. You can't tame me. This book was meant to be free. A cowgirl on the range in El Paso smiled at me and got out her lasso. And that's when I put on the gas so you can tame me. And, uh, and this sets up kind of her attraction to him. Um, and then in the next episode, uh, she gets even madder goes to a picnic basket auction, uh, which is a send-up of a very similar scene in Oklahoma where women auction off uh, baskets to men and they go on dates. And she makes this really self-righteous speech where she says she's not a piece of meat, so she is the basket um, and no one bids on her. So you kind of see that her feminist ideals don't really have a place in this town. Um, and then when it seems like all is lost and no one is going to bid on her at all, of course, uh, Danny Bailey shows up and they sing uh, a duet once they get back to the carnival. Um, which I think is, is probably my favorite song in the show. Um, it's called Enjoy the Ride, and it is a very If I Were a Bell-esque kind of flirty duet. Um, but anyway, I will, I will stop summarizing and, and ask you guys to talk about how you feel about um, Melissa and Danny's relationship, uh, how you felt about her feminism, um, if you thought any of the jokes about her kind of being into musicals, but also not liking their politics were funny. Um, what are your thoughts on this character? One of the things that uh, when you're, when you were thinking about the, when you were mentioning the picnic basket scene <clears throat> and it, maybe y'all can help me figure this one out is that one of the things that, um, that I saw Melissa doing a couple of times, uh, throughout the show was, you know, confronting this sort of conflict between her own, um, you know, between her 21st century uh, feminist uh, idea or worldview and the worldview of 
Schmigadoon, and yet in her attempt to subvert it, she kind of reinforces it. Because on the one hand, you know, she, she declares proudly that she's not a piece of meat, but then she puts herself on the auction. So she sort of, so like on the one hand, she removes the seeming pretense of the picnic basket, but then also puts herself up for auction and then I think sort of finds herself having to navigate some of those moments. Um, and it, there are, uh, another one that maybe we could think about are some of the experiences she has once she uh, gets together with Doc Lopez, um, you know, once she uh, joins his medical practice and then sort of what happens there. Um, yeah, which is so we, we go from carousel to um, half sound of music and half kiss being Kate, um, which is which is interesting. Um, yeah. Um, and also the enjoy the ride. I, I also to me, uh, it reminded me of um, Baby, It's Cold Outside, which I had not realized until I did yeah. some poking around was also from an incredibly obscure musical. And I did not realize yeah. that Lesser wrote that song. So, <laughs> yeah, that's um, true. It's uh, it's it's Frank Lesser. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, so I'm not sure if that's in, insightful at all, but I, I did find those moments interesting that, you know, that she sort of stumbles into, like, reinforcing some of those tropes in her attempts to subvert them. And um, and Danny Bailey knows that, too. Um, at, at the end of her kind of speech about the um, basket auction that you mentioned, which we, we should say, I forgot to mention before, um, she is drunk during this speech because she has consumed punch from the gentleman's punch bowl instead of the lady's punch bowl at the auction. Um, and she's told that it's spiked and she's like, oh, OK, thanks for the info. And then drinks like 12 cups of punch. So she's drunk. She's railing about it. Um, she says, um, I'm not a piece of meat. I'm, quote, just a strong, independent woman who will never settle for less than she's worth again. Um, and then later, right before the enjoy the ride scene, Danny calls her a strong, independent woman when he says he'll teach her how to shoot a gun so that she can win the teddy bear for herself. So again, like she's kind of doing a lot of this uh, feminist proclaiming while being in situations that are very um, are promoting very regressive gender roles. You know, he wraps himself around her while in the guise of showing her how to shoot the gun and and that sort of thing. Well, and Victoria, you know, you mentioned the idea of woman changing a man for the better, right, as a recurring theme. Well, she she sort of accidentally lands in that because Danny sings this, you know, you can't tame me song, and then they have their one-night stand, and then he, he sings, you done tamed me. And she wasn't necessarily, in that case, looking to change him, but her being in relationship with him did have this transformative effect on him. And then when she turns around and does end up in a relationship with Doc Lopez, like he has that, that great moment where he basically says, like, you were right about everything and I was wrong about everything. And she says, like, that's the sexiest thing anyone's ever said to me. And he has this complete reversal and completely becomes essentially whatever she wants him to be. Like, he's this very malleable character because he has has realized that she was right about everything. And so within her relationships in Schmigadoon, because of her tendency, like you said, to, to be perfectionist, to micromanage, to, to want to change or improve her relationship or even change or improve Josh in ways that he legitimately needs to change. I mean, he, he has his own arc as well. She is affecting that also within Schmigadoon. She's acting out that woman changing a man um, so that it's interesting. And, and we'll come back to this when we talk more about relationships. But before turning to, you know, another human person who isn't necessarily going to be malleable in the same way that that Danny and Doc Lopez proved to be like she kind of gets what um, what you want out of a musical and maybe what she thought she wanted from Josh. And and that's sort of dissatisfying. Um for her, which I thought was interesting. But then the problem I had with that was I was trying to trace a similar trajectory because while all this is going on, Josh is supposed to be having his own adventure. Um, and I struggled a little bit more with tracking his 
mistake or, or, you know, paradigm that needed to be shifted um, because I didn't necessarily see as many issues with, with, at least with his second relationship. It was not immediately apparent to me. I don't know if you guys had thoughts on this, sort of what is his trajectory of what does he need to learn um, and how does he learn that through the relationships he has in Schmigadoon? Because it didn't feel like it was balanced as much. It is not as much, but I think Josh um, learns not to give up as easily. Um, and, and we see that a little bit in the relationship with Emma and Carson. Um, the, the plot that Josh is in, like uh, we said, Melissa starts off in Carousel and ends up in some bizarre combination of Sound of Music and uh, Kiss Me Kate. Josh primarily is operating within the world of the music man um, and falls in love with the Mary and the librarian character, um, Emma Tate, played by the absolutely phenomenal um, Ariana DeBose, who was the bullet in Hamilton. If, uh, if you've had an opportunity to see Hamilton, either streaming on Disney plus or in person, um, she hosted the Tonys this year. She was Anita in the remake of um, West Side Story that Spielberg put out last year. She won a well-deserved Oscar for that. She's phenomenal. Um, she plays Emma Tate, who is the town school marm, and um, Josh works for her. He's her handyman. They also fall in love, um, partly because he is very nice to her brother, Carson, who's the Winthrop from the Music Man character, announces everything, has a lisp, um, learns to play a musical instrument, and we find out through the course of the plot that um, that Carson is in fact Emma's uh, son, not her brother, which has long been a Music Man fan theory, um, but never confirmed that, that Winthrop is uh, Marion's son rather than her brother. So, yeah, I, I think through that relationship, because he teaches um, Carson some silly lessons and feels bad about them, and because he realizes that Emma is emotionally strong because she hasn't given up on being there for Carson, being both a sibling figure and a parent figure, um, I think that's what Josh learns but, of course, the real thing he learns is how to give himself over emotionally because the kind of emotional climax of the series is when Josh, who has been kind of complaining the whole time about how he doesn't like musicals and they're stupid and why do people do that? It doesn't make any sense. Blah, blah, blah. Um, he is so overcome for love with Melissa at the end of the show that he in fact starts his own song and that's the big emotional payoff. So those two things I think are what he learns, but you're right that her arc is kind of stronger and more evident than his. Yeah. Cause I think, I mean, he, he learns a lesson not to give up and then he bails on Emma and Carson and, and, and you don't see, and I, and I don't know how much of this is just supposed to be the characterization of him as a, less emotionally open person but I feel like I buy that the whole time Cecily Strong Melissa is going through these different relationships she is thinking back to Josh and missing what they had and that still means something to her so that it, it resonates when she realizes she doesn't want to be with Doc Lopez she wants to be with Josh and I feel like I just didn't get that same feeling from Josh that he wants to be with Melissa. He's very quick to run off with uh, with Betsy because uh, he thinks it'll get him out of Schmigadoon. He's more than happy to cross the bridge. Uh, they, they have to cross the bridge with their true love in order to get out. And so he just lines up all the women in town, tells them he's a doctor, and tries to cross the bridge with all of them to try and get out of town without really any seeming concern for Melissa or, or anything else. And so it it... It rang a little hollow for me that he has this big revelation as he's about to cross the bridge with Emma um, that no, he actually loves Melissa because I just I didn't feel like the foundation had been laid there in part because they'd chosen to have him be less emotionally expressive. So maybe it was there all the time, but I just I didn't feel like the work had been done to make that a believable um, a believable climax. Like I, I was like I don't I don't know that she does make you want to sing. <laughs> Um, you know, it just, it, it, so that, that part was a little hard for me. And it made me wonder if part of it is we're in a, a device that like the story framing device is, is hers, right? It's her musical theater. 
um, interest. And and even though I know season two has to be musical theater, and that's fine, and I'm excited for it, I do wonder what would have happened if the next chapter was they get plunked down in oh I don't know a sports movie since he has a you know I think a, a Derek Jeter jersey in in the apartment and and talks about season tickets to something or other like if that would have balanced it differently where it was a genre where she was more off balance and he was more at home and if that's part of what we're seeing with his arc not. I don't know, just not carrying the same weight and not doing doing the same amount of work. But again, I don't I don't know if that's fair. That's a really interesting point that I hadn't thought about. I think probably because I am so invested in the form that I I just kind of it's hard for me to think from the perspective of a person who is not comfortable in that universe. But that's a that's a really good point, Alexis. One of the things that yeah, I hadn't considered that either. But as you were talking, Alexis, I started wondering about whether or not, kind of like we mentioned, that there are moments where Melissa sort of ends up, um, you know, ends up, uh, uh, I don't want to get uh, too technical sounding, but, you know, she sort of ends up, in her attempts to subvert the trope, ends up reinforcing the trope. I mean, it seems like the, you know, like your conversion of, um, like, Sky Masterson, it seems somewhat fast and implausible, or even of um, Nathan Detroit, right, finally turning around and deciding to get married at the very end, that the... um, Tell us who those people are for the listeners that don't know, Sarah. Sure. So if you're thinking about the musical Guys and Dolls, so Sky Masterson is, uh, and Nathan Detroit are characters from Guys and Dolls who are... Um, who are gamblers and gangsters, and um, Nathan Detroit has been engaged in a long-term relationship, uh, in his case, engaged to the love of his life, purportedly Adelaide, for years, seven years, something like that, and um, won't set a date for them to get married. And so Adelaide keeps pushing him, like, when are we going to get married? When are we going to get married? And Nathan keeps putting it off and putting it off and putting it off until the end of the show. In that same musical, Sky Masterson, who has sort of shades of the of the Billy Bigelow uh, kind of character finds himself falling hard for um, for a woman who is part of the Save a Soul mission, which is supposed to look like the Salvation Army. Um, she's a Salvation Army missionary, and he falls in love with her, and he tries to um, he there's a whole bunch of other stuff um but he finds himself falling for her but he's sort of the requisite bad boy who rehabilitates at the end of the musical um so uh so those two were ones who came to mind that sort of come around um after seemingly you know dragging their heels for you know an act and a half um you know or two hours of the two and a half hours of your standard run musical um so i sort of wondered if it was part of the genre convention that the the transformation when it happens does seem uh, a little bit more sudden or a little bit more incomplete perhaps than Melissa's would have um, but uh, but yeah I don't know if you know if the the construct were reversed and Melissa were the one out of her depth if that would change how that happens well, I know we still have a lot to talk about, so I'm going to, um, if it's okay with you guys, I'm going to move us forward to talk about uh, faith in the show. Um, so uh, specifically, I went, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, the character of the, the reverend's wife within within the show. So we have a Reverend Layton, and his wife is Mildred Layton, um, and she is played by Kristen Chenoweth. Um, so, uh, Victoria, again, to go to you, what, what do we... What do we see the show saying about Christians in the character of Mildred Layton, do you think? Uh, not a lot of good stuff, unfortunately. Um, even though she does, like, like most villain characters, um, reform by the end, um, Mildred's vision of Christianity is fairly flat and not very positive. Um, when we meet her, she is immediately antagonistic to Melissa and Josh for two reasons. One, because they want to share a bed in the hotel and they are unmarried. Um, And two, she makes cracks about them um, being miscegenators 
Um, not my word, hers. I, I heard the word miscegenation more in six episodes than I have in probably 36 years of life. Um, she's she's very concerned with uh, the fact that Josh is black and Melissa is white. Um, she doesn't seem to actually have any Christian beliefs that are theological. She cares really strongly about appearances. Um, when uh, when we're talking about the reason that the picnic basket auction is raising money, Betsy's little sister tells us that it's raising money for books to replace the ones the reverend's wife burned. And uh, Mildred calls literature dirty. Um, she refers to um, Shakespeare and Balzac as being dirty books. Um, I figured they pulled out Shakespeare because everybody knows who that is, and they pulled out Balzac because it is in itself a dirty joke. Ha, ha, ha. Um, and in Music Man. Yeah, that's I true. caught that one. I didn't catch a lot of them, but I caught that one. That too. Um, she calls Melissa and Josh outsiders over and over and over, and is just very um, concerned with the fact that they're foreign ways are going to lead to this slippery slope that um, is going to ruin the town of Schmigadoon. Um, the thing we find out about her, the reason she's so against interracial re relationships is that her daughter has run off with a sailor who is black and they are pregnant out of wedlock. Um, Josh and Melissa convince her through their sort of general social acceptance to um, to accept her daughter and her husband. Um, we get a, a lovely shot of um, Chenoweth holding their baby at the end of the show. Um, the other kind of subplot that makes Mildred and, by extension, Christians not look great has to do with Reverend Layton. Um, somebody else talk about that. What is, what is Reverend Layton's plot and um, why... Why is it not a great vision of Christianity? Well, I'm not sure if it's exactly the the part of his plot that you're that you're thinking of, but I thought it was really interesting that the source of the religious ire within the show was not from the clergy. It was from the clergyman's wife, um, that the actual clergy is portrayed as friendly in a sort of harmless, unthreatening way. Um, and I'll talk in a minute that some of what he has to say is actually, I think, some of the more sound, stuff that we get within the show but um but as far as his general demeanor it reminds me of the old uh, eddie izzard bit about the church of england not having extreme points of view uh you must have tea and cake with the vicar or you die um like that, that's just not it doesn't seem like the kind of his vision of of faith does not seem like the kind of thing that anyone would believe in passionately enough to die for it like it, it's this very like i said harmless and unthreatening um he isn't the source of fire and brimstone here he's just a nice guy um it's this lay person adjacent to him who has these powerful convictions. And I thought it was interesting that they chose to have the woman, a woman in the show, be, be the one who is the source of all of this uh, vitriol and all of these, these uh, extreme opinions within the, the show's view. Um, so it's a woman trying to oppress other people, a woman trying to impose her morals on them, not a male character, mm -hmm. um, which I thought was an interesting and possibly a reflection of the feminization of evangelicalism generally that is there are more women in evangelicalism than than men but um but but still i don't know still i was just i was thinking about that 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 dynamic was really interesting um and how would it have played out differently if it had been say um the reverend who was preaching fire and brimstone and morality and he was married to uh, a woman who was more um more progressive um and, and we find out throughout the, the course of the show that the reverend um, is actually homosexual and he and the mayor, who is also homosexual, both of them are closeted at this point and they are attracted to one another and they, they both sort of confess that very, very close in time. So if we had a fire and brimstone preacher married to a closeted lesbian progressive, um, you know, how would that have changed the dynamic? Or even a female reverend who preached acceptance and her layman husband was foaming and frothing about morality. Um, 
just playing around with that and seeing how it would have changed it. At a minimum, I think it would have affected the ability to rehabilitate that character. Like, it's much easier to come around to Kristen Chenoweth has a change of heart and becomes nice than it would be if it had been, um, you know, like I said, a female reverend's angry husband um, who'd been trying to control people and uh, stirring up fear and, and all of this um, but yeah, I was just thinking about some of the ways that those those relationships work together um, because that dynamic is interesting, that he's so unconcerned with, with these these matters of morality from her perspective uh, that all that comes from that, that lay person. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really interesting point. I, I also think there's another layer there, or kind of the same layer, but in two different directions. The fact that the mayor who... Um, announces that he is homosexual is played by Alan Cumming, um, who is an out gay man and has been, uh, has been so for decades. Um, and is, is most, uh, famous for playing, as I said, the MC in cabaret, which is kind of the, um, the pinnacle of openly queer, um, roles on Broadway. And then Kristen Chenoweth, who plays Mildred Layton, is um, one of the most public uh, Christians on Broadway. Um, she's spoken about this a lot as an actor. Um, her memoir, A Little Bit Wicked, Life, Love, and Faith in Stages, um, talks really intelligently about how she um, is Christian, though she is a different kind of Christian than the one she was raised to be. Um, she particularly is uh, an LGBTQ ally, and she credits that to uh, working very closely with so many queer people on Broadway. So I, I think it's really interesting that they put her in this really kind of cookie-cutter, flat, religious bigot role, um, because I, I think that people who know anything about her personally know that um, she can play that role the way she's playing it because she doesn't really think that way. Yeah, I had had a similar sort of thought about that, that um, almost it, reclamation isn't the right word, but it, could it possibly have been anybody else in, in that role for precisely the reason you mentioned, Victoria? Oh, and I, I also should mention um, a, a show that she was in that I think no one but me watched, um, a show called GCB, uh, which stands for Good Christian Word I Cannot Say on this podcast, um, and was a, a really interesting deconstruction of Southern evangelical femininity um, that I loved a lot and that sadly only lasted for one season. Um, but she was fantastic in it. And I think you can kind of, you know, see how she would go from a role like that to a role like this. I did, in fact, watch that show. Uh, I didn't watch all of it, but I watched three or four episodes of it. And, and yes, I yes, I agree with everything you said. One other thing I do want to say about Mildred Layton is she's very concerned that Josh and Melissa are going to change her town and then they change her town. So, like, I mean, there, there's I think it's a, a fair question as to whether it's a change for the better. Like, that's I understand that that's the argument within the show, but there is a sense in which she is not wrong. Like, the, the, the town is fundamentally different at the end than it was at the beginning. And however you want to construe the Layton's marriage prior to the end of the show, in some sense, it costs her her husband. I mean, maybe they didn't because the idea is that they weren't really married in any meaningful sense. But but at the end of the show, right, there is this idea of her husband is now um, pursuing a relationship with, with the mayor. Um, and so, like, there there are ways in which some of her alarmism, like, some of it's manufactured. Like, you know, she has a friend throw peanut shells on the ground and then points out the peanut shells as evidence of the depravity that Josh and Melissa are introducing to their community. Um, so some of it's disingenuous, which, but I, I just... Be, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, there there is there is a sense in which some of her predictions are not incorrect, um, which I think is an interesting shade to it as well. Yeah, that's true. It it is uh, important to say that she's not wrong. Um, since you mentioned the the peanut shells um, and and the craziness that ensues, I do want to mention. Um, I'm not hating on Mildred. I'm certainly not hating on Kristen Chenoweth. Um, the number that that leads into 
the number Tribulation, which is a riff on um, the wonderful, incredibly technically proficient, crazy patter song Trouble from The Music Man. Um, it's it's the most difficult um, number in the show. It's incredibly fast. It is also filmed in a one-shot um, God bless that dolly operator, whoever they were. Um, but Chinoweth also just like sings the heck out of it. Um, she's moving so quickly. It's a really beautiful number, the kind of number that reminds me why I love um, musical theater so much. So um, if if you're on the fence about whether to watch this show, I would say at least um, Google the number Tribulation and watch that because it, it really is an incredible piece of musical theater. I think I read it was 18 pages with no rhymes is what I think she said when she was trying to learn it. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yes, I, I read the, Yeah, I read the same thing and then apparently she got it on the fourth take or something because she's Kristen Chenoweth and, you know. Yeah, because she's a goddess on earth. Like, she's incredible. Uh, well, I do want to make sure um, we have a chance to talk a little bit. So sort of related to the portrayal, honestly, of both faith and, and gender, um, is this idea throughout the series of what is true love? What are relationships for? And the, the framing device, right, is that they can't leave Schmigadoon unless they cross the bridge with their true love. And they spend the, the course of the show trying to find that true love. Um, so within this show, what what are they saying that relationships, love, and marriage are supposed to be for? Um, Sarah, did you have any thoughts about this? I did actually, as I was uh, as I was taking a look at it, and it's actually related to my passing on that that we'll talk about at the end of the episode. I think that um, you know if we're looking like if Chenoweth's portrayal could be problematic, but also it could only be pulled off by by Kristen Chenoweth. I think that the that the Reverend Layton's commentary, it was to Josh, was it was it to I can't remember, was it to Josh or to Melissa where he cites It's Josh. Uh, her, her Josh yeah. yeah. So it's Josh. So he uh so Reverend uh so Reverend Layton says to Josh, uh, you know, that true love is uh something that you work for that it's not it's not something you find it's something you work for he cites uh you know he cites first corinthians 13 and then uh you have doc lopez's mom who comes back and tells melissa that uh love is something you choose and i think that this is um that that this is uh perhaps uh, one of the most christian aspects of the show in a way that that i really got on board with because uh true love from you know, from a uh, from the Christian tradition in which I was raised, means uh, you know, true love is willing the good of the other. So choosing, so it's a, it is a decision to choose what is good for the other person. And so, so in the fact that it is outward facing, it's a commitment and it has a common cause. I think that one of the things that Melissa and Josh do end up sort of realizing in fits and starts but come to is the fact that it they they do need to figure out what's good for each other and one of the moments that i think uh that that helps with this and it might have happened after josh's conversation with reverend layton excuse me please i'm sorry i'm still recovering from a cold um when uh when josh comes to melissa asking for help with emma and they're sitting in the uh, in Doc Lopez's office, and Melissa says, "Okay, like, what am I going to have to do? Am I going to have to explain this to you?" And he was like, "Yeah, I, I don't know what this is doing." And she pauses, and then she says, "Well, okay." And she does help him. She does explain that, like, if the musical that he is in is sort of it, at least, or the storyline he's in is at least partly a send up of the Music Man, then he, as the character that she thinks he is, is going to have to do X, Y, and Z in order to help Emma, or in order to get Emma. And she does that without, like, with seemingly knowing that, that her decision to help him try to get Emma is not necessarily going to benefit her. So that's a moment where she, 
makes a decision to do what's good for Josh so that Josh can learn, you know, or so that Josh can succeed. And it, it's at those moments where I think they do start moving towards true love, although the show doesn't quite call it out that way. Like, they're not as heavy-handed. And so I think that it's um, that sort of nuanced moment is something that I found um, redeeming is too strong a word, but I found really refreshing as far as uh, the understanding of true love and how the show treats it. That's true. I, I think my favorite thing about this show um, is that it it says that love is an action and love is a choice. Um, though I, I think, Sarah, you're giving Melissa a tiny bit too much credit um, because right before she decides to help Josh, uh, she utters my favorite line in the entire show, um, a sentence I have never related to more when she says, uh, I'm so torn between not wanting to help you and really wanting to show off how much I know about musicals, which is like <laughs> a thousand percent my experience of watching musicals with people who don't like musicals. Uh, so, yes, that's true. She does end up um, putting his needs before her own because she explains to him that uh, he is, in fact, in The Music Man and he needs to buy her brother a musical instrument to fall in love with her, and it works. Um, but she's not 100% happy about it at first, and that line is hilarious. Well, and I would absolutely agree, and that's where I think that, like, it's, it's not – it's certainly not perfect – uh, but I think it is a it is a refreshing moment, and I think that that she there are some aspects about the way she plays it that suggest that yeah she's a she's at least sort of aware. Um, but yeah, I also really loved that line, Victoria. I think it's really interesting. I, I whenever I hear this articulation of of love as an action or or love as a choice. Um, it always takes me back to C.S. Lewis, right? He talks about this. If if love is just a feeling, the feeling of being in love, which I cannot control, uh, then what in the world does it mean to promise to love someone until death do us part? It's like promising never to get a headache. Uh, it's just utterly meaningless. But if love is a choice or an action, and that's what you're promising, something that actually engages your will, then promising to do it can actually mean something. And related to that is also C.S. Lewis's uh, advice that, like, hey, if you want to, if you want to love someone, act like you love them, and that, like, acting like you love them will cause you to love them. Um, but the idea of rooting it more in, in will and choice, um, which I, I really like that, and I wasn't expecting to see that in, <laughs> um, you know, um, mass media. Um, portrayal of true love. Um, I recently read Kate DeCamelo's children's book, Flora and Ulysses, which is not like high literature. It's about a girl and a squirrel with superpowers. But um, I love it... that book, and I love <laughs> Kate DeCamelo, um, who is a native Minnesotan, and uh, I, I got to see her read Tale of Despero at a library once. It's Aww. one of the greatest things I've ever seen happen. Okay, that's sorry. a great book Go too. On. Anyway, no, I, 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 the more I've read of her, the more I love her. But I read that book recently, and there's the in this the in the book there's the section where they're talking about different ways you can say goodbye to people, and one of the ways is I promise to always turn back toward you, and I, I love that. It, it kind of fit with what they're talking about here, the choice you make every day uh, to turn back toward the other person, to orient yourself toward them, to choose to do that. Um, you know, whether that's not letting the sun go down on your anger and reconciling, like whatever that is. And so that that's a Christ, that's a very Christian idea of love. Um, and and it was yeah, I just I, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. And it, it's not perfect. It's not you know I wouldn't say that it's a great image across the board of love. But but that was a real pleasant surprise to see um, that idea of like like the Reverend says something. It's not something you find. It's something that you you work for. So it's not a matter of going through the whole roster of all the women in the village and crossing the the bridge with them. Um, it's yeah, it's not a treasure hunt. It's 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 something that you work for and you choose and you make, um, which I I really liked. I will say about the bridge episode that that or the bridge number um, that. That might be my second favorite number because I was in a production of How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying in college, and that song is at least partly a send-up of the big number Brotherhood of Brotherhood Man of at man. the end, yeah. 
at the end of How to Succeed, and I was like, I, I was all in for that song because it was, yeah, it brought back all of the memories and all of the feels for me. Nice. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I wasn't sure what they were doing with that song until the soprano came in um, and, and sang the bridge, and then I was like, oh, this is Brotherhood of Man. Like, that's brilliant. Yeah. So, Victoria, you said you think your favorite is Enjoy the Ride. Sarah, um, you had said you really liked the I uh, Always, Always, Never Get My Man song. It's probably yes, your favorite. Always, I, I think so, which I think I read in um, in one of the articles that you shared with us that that might not be uh, Cinco Paul's favorite effort in the show, but I, I really liked it because I really love all of the wordplay in, um, in Always True to You uh, in my fashion from Kiss Me Kate and um, I I liked that I really liked the way they rolled that part in with Baroness Schrader like that was a really fascinating mashup to me right there was Tex who traded stocks hired a girl to darn his socks and when Texie's socks led to sexy talks I was out on my care give my all to each endeavor and I always and Jane Krakowski, I thought, did a great job. Sure, yeah. yeah. She she really um, sings and dances incredibly, and that song, we should say, takes place hilariously um, in a moving car that somehow, while um, while the, is she a countess? Is that what she is? I keep wanting to call her the Baroness because she's Baroness Schrader. Right. I, th- I think she's a countess, yeah. Uh, the countess is singing and dancing, and the car is driving itself. It's wonderful. <laughs> well, I will say that I think, I was thinking about this, and I think my favorite might be uh, Suddenly. There's no sense in trying to explain what and where and why and when and how All I know is suddenly I love you And suddenly that's all that matters now um, I don't know what the right word is for it musically, but that kind of lyrical symmetry of the chorus um, there's no sense in trying to explain it, what and where and why and when and how, which I just, I love that list of, I just love that. Uh, all I know is suddenly I love you and suddenly that's all that matters now. I 100% disagree with the substance, but the, the insertion of suddenly, like the repeated idea of suddenly and, and all of that, that, that symmetry, like that, that kind of lyrical stuff is just my jam. And it seems like it would be fun to sing in kind of an on the street where you live kind of way. Um, so I, I did find myself humming that one quite a bit after watching the show. Uh, one last question that's not necessarily uh, Christian or feminist. Is the song With All of Your Heart meant to be ironic? Um, is it like poking fun at the earnestness of musicals and like trying your best? Because Josh does need to try harder and be willing to exert himself. So it seems like it's sincere. But when I think about the idea of always trying to do your best with all of your heart, that sounds utterly exhausting and oppressive. So I was wondering if you thought, is that supposed to be, like, ironic and sort of, you know, gently mocking, or is that supposed to be taken on its face? Well, I think if we look at its closest musical referent, um, which I think is, uh, is pretty clearly getting to know you from the king and I, can, can we all agree on that? Sure. Yes, I think so. Um, I think it is at least a little bit arch um, because Anna and and by the same token Emma um, are supposed to look naive in the moment of the song. Um, Anna is kind of out of her depth because she's in Siam and she doesn't know how to communicate with these children and she hasn't figured out sort of what her emotional attraction to the king is. Um, and and Emma kind of is also in a weird liminal space um, in Schmigadoon because she is a, um, she's supposed to be an authority figure, 
because she's the school teacher and she is the smartest person in the town and she knows she's the smartest person in the town, but um, she has this dark secret and there's a lot of stuff she doesn't know about life. So I do, I think that it's, it's a little bit arch. It's not entirely sincere. I also think that it is a joke about the heart-shaped rocks of each other's that Josh and Melissa um, lose but not really lose that is the kind of catalyst for the first argument. I think um, that heart reference is, is doing double or triple duty there. Okay, that makes sense. I just, I want to state for the record that there are plenty of circumstances when doing less than your best is fine and possibly even preferable, but I realize that put forth the reasonable effort under the circumstances does not make for a great musical number. So, <laughs> um, uh, with that, uh, we should move on to passing on. Sarah, do you have a recommendation for us? Yes, I do, and um, the links will be posted in the show notes. Our discussion about true love and, uh, got me looking for a couple of videos. Um, so I have uh, a couple for you. One of them is called The Meaning of I Love You. It's posted by Father Mike Schmitz, who is of the uh, Bible in a Year podcast fame. Um, I got to meet him over the summer. He is a lovely person. Um, he's Yeah, he's just great. Um, and then the other one is called True Love as Catholics, which is another, uh, which is from another, um, uh, faith outreach, uh, YouTube channel. So true love as Catholics and the meaning of I love you as part of a framework for the journey that Melissa and Josh are on in this series. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Victoria, what about you? What is your recommendation for us? Uh, well, I honestly could have recommended like 25 things. Uh, for this segment, uh, I limited myself to two, so you're welcome, listeners. Otherwise, we would be here for hours. Uh, one of them is uh, the TikTok and YouTube accounts of a guy named Caden Marshall, who calls himself the musical dealer, um, who does a kind of recommended, if you like, uh, for discovering new musicals. Um, if you're into uh, this, try that. He also has some lists of um, musicals appropriate for children, um, musicals organized by number of parts, musicals organized by geography. So if you want to learn more about musicals, um, check out all of his documents, uh, The Musical Dealer. Also, um, because I could not leave this episode without fangirling Aaron Tveit at least a little bit more. Um, my very favorite performance of his is from uh, the virtual presentation that was held during COVID for Stephen Sondheim's uh, 90th birthday. He performs uh, my very favorite show, uh, very favorite song from my very favorite show, um, Marry Me a Little from Company. And it is just so beautiful. Like the acting is beautiful. The singing is beautiful. The song is wonderful, of course, because it's Stephen Sondheim, um, probably the greatest composer in the history of American musical theater uh, composers. And yes, I will fight you on that. Uh, so check out The Musical Dealer and check out Aaron Tveit's cover of Marry Me a Little from Company. Thanks for those recommendations. Um, my recommendation is the book Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Dumay. Um, and the reason I'm recommending it is in Mildred Layton's story arc, we see her um, throughout much of it. She has a sincere belief that, that Josh and Melissa pose a threat. But at one point, like I said, she, she manufactures some, um, some evidence of that and is willing to use fear to seize power. And that's a theme that we see a lot in, um, in Jesus and John Wayne. Um, the idea of, of Christian leaders, especially, um, some sincerely and some disingenuously capitalizing on fear and drumming up and, and fomenting fear as a means of seizing power. Um, and so for, for more of a discussion of that, um, I recommend uh, that that book. Um, and and Victoria, you did the the profiles interview with her. Is that right? I did. Um, I that's the second time I've interviewed um, Kristen on Christian Humanist Profiles. I also interviewed her about her earlier book, um, which is about Christian feminism in the um, 
19th century. And she's a really interesting historian. Um, Jesus and John Wayne is a great book. There's a reason it's been on bestseller lists and now published in, oh, I don't know how many languages, eight or nine or something. Um, yeah, she she totally deserves all of the accolades she's been getting for this book. It, it really is an important document um, in, in the history of public Christianity. So we'll we'll include links to the passing on, um, obviously, but then I'll, we'll also include links to related shows, and so we'll make sure we include a link to um, that interview and, and and the other as well. Um, and I know we've at least done complementarianish did an episode on Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, and we did an episode on Baby It's Cold Outside, which we've referenced here today. So any other ones that we come up with that seem like they're related to our discussion, we'll be sure to put those in the show notes as well. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Victoria Reynolds Farmer and Sarah Thomas, I'm Alexis Neal. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss St. Teresa of Avila. Until then, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, love.